morning. Let's hear from God's word. <clears throat> We're starting at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, and I'll be reading through to chapter 2 and verse 25. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet, had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, 
the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But, Ad but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever wondered why domestic dogs bark so much? Now, compared to you know, wild dogs, our furry friends are seriously noisy, aren't they? Barking day and night at almost anything. Now, a group of re researchers decided to look into this, took upon themselves to work out why dogs bark at all. And they came up with some very interesting results. Uh, dogs in the wild, like wolves and coyotes, do bark, but they only do so when they're very small puppies, and as they grow up, they stop barking completely. Dogs in captivity, on the other hand, start barking as puppies, and they rarely stop till the day they die. Now, the researchers reckon the reason for this was that the dogs in captivity are having an identity crisis. Yes. The puppies in the wild, in the security of a pack, very quickly discover who they are and what, where they fit, what their purpose is, what they're supposed to do. Dogs in captivity, meanwhile, are still unsure. They're running around asking everything they see. Yeah, woof, 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 what am I? Who am I? Woof, 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 what am I supposed to be? Woof, woof, am I a tree? Am I a dog? Woof, woof, am I a human? Am I you? What am I? Woof, woof, woof. Poor animals are confused. Uh, not least because of the pack they live amongst, just don't have fur, walk on two legs, not four, speak entirely a different language, don't seem to understand what's going on. No wonder dogs find it so difficult. And while we find this amusing, are we humans that much better? I mean, sure, we know that we're humans, we're not struggling with that, but for the most part, most of us have the foggiest idea about who we are as a human and what we're supposed to do. What does success look like in being a human? And, and so like domestic dogs, we run around asking everyone, looking for affirmation, looking for definition, looking for purpose, trying to figure out who we are going to be and what we're going to do. And, and we look everywhere possible, looking at everything possible, without any clear or consistent anchor or reason why. We just don't know. And every day we wake up feeling out of sorts, and, and kind of start all over again, hunting for security, clarity, purpose, anything that will help us to understand and be content for just a moment. Have you noticed this about yourself? You think back to those times when it was like that? Have, have, you, did, have you noticed this about anyone else in our world around us? Oh, the plague of being human. I know for me it certainly has been many points in my life and it's so easy to fall back into it. Every now and again I've got to take an absolute moratorium from social media because if I post something, you know what I want to know? Who saw it? How many? Who liked it? Who didn't? What comment did they have? Oh my goodness. Completely unmoors me from all kinds of things and I've become fixated on what people thought of me in response. 
And when our identity and our purpose and our measure of success is defined and measured by what other equally lost people think, then it's the blind leading the blind and our anxiety rises and our grasping accelerates and our peace is stolen away and we wind up in all kinds of anxious difficulty as we seek to invent and then reinvent ourselves over and over and over and over again, barking up the wrong tree, hoping for something better than the disappointment, frustration and shame that plague us constantly. What happens when we compare our circumstances, when we compare our hot mess with the first humans there in Genesis 2.25? What did it say? Read it out with me. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. No shame. Naked and no shame. They had contentment, security, clarity of identity and purpose in community with another person standing there. No seeking, searching, grasping, protecting. No shame. Do you want what they've got? (laughs) Do you know anyone who needs what they had? Yeah, I do too. So let's pause our barking and do some careful listening to God who gave these first humans what they needed, everything they needed. Because maybe there's something in this for us and those we know. Maybe there's something here. And so when we do that, when we stop, when we pause, we allow God to speak as we just have with the Bible being read. When we open the Bible, we find who we are as people and what we're supposed to do. It is laid out for us clearly and succinctly in this introductory poem we examined last week, where we have that all-important definition of humankind recorded for us there by God as he spoke and made it very, very clear for us. It said, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now these beginning words God supplied give All humans, what we need to know about our identity, our purpose, and what success looks like. Humans are made in God's image, identity. We rule the world under him, all created things, ruling them under him, purpose. And what does success look like? We succeed through procreation. Now, the moment we cut ourselves off from those three basic pieces of information, we got lost and began chasing our tails, trying to figure out our identity, our purpose, and what success looks like ever since. And our poor world now creaks and groans under the weight of our potential and our mistakes. And all these things we've become totally unsure about. So like domestic dogs barking continually, we ask each other, what even is a human? 
What's a man now? What's a man mean? You know, what should we be doing? And why should we be doing that? And what is our bodily equipment supposed to be used for in order to succeed? And cut loose from listening to God on these issues, we all go about making up answers for ourselves and answers for other people as well. And we have no, other, no end of trouble trying to help one another with these three key issues because we all have exactly the same problem and we all come up with different answers. If, if only we were people of the ear. If only we were people of the ear who listened to what God had to say on these things. The one who created us and made us fit for a purpose. If only. Because more than just the introductory definitions that we have in Genesis 1 in that poem, God also gave us Genesis 2, which unpacks it for us beautifully. You see, God didn't just create the universe and then nick off into the seventh day, leaving us to it while he had a rest. No, God continued to intervene, to not to create anymore, no, 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 but to sustain, to mould, to shape, to supply, to refine, to save the things that he had created so our potential can be realised. And that's what we have here, that account here, Genesis 2, 4 to 25. And for those who get caught up demanding six 24-hour days of creation, I'll please pay attention to what it says here in verses 4 to 14. The poem of Genesis 1 is the introduction of concepts. Genesis 2 is the account, the historical account of it occurring, an account which allows for an infinite length of time for evolution and species and all kinds of things to have possibly occurred before humankind was created. And for those who get all caught up on environmental concerns, asking, is God green? And, and what did he make us for to ruin this thing that he made? Please pay attention to verses 4 to 20. It's there. Answers the question for us beautifully. Chapter 1 of Genesis is good, but it's merely the definition chapter, the prologue, the introductory summary of the whole scope of everything to make sure that we get all the concepts right and we get them in the proper place and in the proper order before we start digging into the details. And it's the details that we then look at and read on now from verse 4 of chapter 2. And we read the defining marker words in Genesis that tell us we're now dealing with history proper. We've got to ignore the chapters. You've got to ignore those numbers that were jammed in a thousand or so years after the Bible was written. Stick with the markers that are in the text because they're there and they tell us what we're dealing with in this particular account. And we find these specific marker words repeated in Genesis over and over again. They're discrete marker points of specific points in time and specific things and focus us in a certain way. So we'll find as we keep reading through Genesis, this is the account of Adam's line or this is the account, the account of Noah or this is the account of Shem, Ham and Japheth. And so on. Here in chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That phrase, it's a differentiating what's going on, what we're now focusing on. And as we read it, it says it's about the heavens and the earth, but the focus here is well, it's not the reaches of space, is it? Nor is it minute ecology of the earth as on view here. 
And nor is the origin of species anything of interest here in this chapter or anything else that we can actually go and find and look for ourselves. God doesn't supply here what we can find. No, he focuses on here on what we can't find by any means, by any means available to us. There are things that are here that can only be revealed by God to us or by someone who was there to us. Had to be by, you had to be there. And we weren't there. And that's so frustrating, isn't it? Because we, we want to be able to shape things. We want to know. And don't you hate it when someone tells you, oh, you had to be there? You know, if, if you had been there, you'd understand. And then they don't tell you. So rude. But God's not rude. He says you weren't there, but he doesn't go, well, therefore I'll tell you nothing. No, he tells us. He unpacks it. He lays it out. And he makes it very clear and orderly and then records it and ensures it stays so we can still have it now and understand these things. And as far as God's concerned, people are not just another inhabitant of planet Earth that we can go investigating. No, as far as he's concerned, we're the linchpin inhabitants of all the things he created, whose every action and decision affects everything else in a particular way. And this is why human history and human future is what the rest of the Bible will focus on as God tells us things about us that we could not figure out for ourselves. And hence, we need to be those who are people who will listen. So he's put us at the top. He's made us the linchpin with a key that affects everything else in all the reaches of the universe. And yet, as our creator, sustainer and saviour, did you notice that God remains the main player in our drama? As that was read out for us, we, we see him here doing the unthinkable and caring for his creation beyond the drawing board where it was designed, beyond the concept phase. He's, he's like a devoted parent of a child invested in their every moment. And so God stays close to Adam here, carefully shaping, maintaining, sustaining, providing the optimum operating environment for him and supplying for him the manual instructions he needs for that optimal performance at all times. God stays put and supplies these things. It's amazing, isn't it? Did you notice along the way how intimately involved God is? Notice how he's in charge of the life-giving rain and supplying the one to work the ground so that good things can come up. Notice how he formed the man from the dust of the ground and personally breathed life into his nostrils. And notice how God planted a particular garden and deliberately placed the man in it, a place already pleasing to the eye and good for human food. And notice how he gave him a tree of life, just in case he you know, had an accident one day and there's no ER and no emergencies and ambulance or first aid. He didn't need that because there's a tree of life there because of the dangers in the world. And notice there in verse 15 how the man receives his specific job description of cultivation of working and taking care of the garden, ruling and subduing in fulfilling work that both sustains life 
and cares for other living things, cultivating them, helping them to grow and flourish also. No command there about abusing or misusing, as we've so often done since, but also not a command to leave it alone. Just let it be. No, no, no. The earth's possibilities are put into the hands of the man to cultivate it and to bring it to its full potential, to perfect what has begun. That's his task. Ruling, subduing through cultivation. And notice also that the man is not outside of God's reach, nor is he outside God's authority. He's in relationship with God, under God, such that God is still the one who determines what's best for the man and what's worse. And it's God who uses his words to talk to the man there and to define right and wrong on earth for Adam, to reveal it to him. Adam's work is to obey God, both in those commands to do the cultivating, but also in the command to not define identity, purpose or success as he sees fit. And this is where it's unlike the cultivation of the ground that Adam was supposed to do. Unlike that, the cultivation of identity, purpose and success are not for him to determine. No, they're God's job to determine and to tell. Why? Because if God left it to him, it would bring about his death. Not God's death, the man's death. And that's wrapped up there for us there in that rule described in verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Serious words, clear, distinct, decisive and very helpful and God's not stingy. He gave him every single tree but one. And while you and I focus on the negative, you know, why not that one? God, of course, here sets up the possibility of ongoing, eternal, living relationship. That's what he's put in front of Adam here. Eternal life. So responsive love for God displayed in obedience to this one command will result in ongoing life supplied by God or disobedience to God's word that will bring about his death, whatever that means, because we're not told what death even is at this point. But the key thing there is, do it God's way and man will live forever. So by verse 17 then, everything's in place. The relationship are setting and setting are now entirely defined with all the boundaries and the tasks in their rightful place with this male made in God's image. And then God says there's something not good in the garden. Something's not good there. Something that God declares is not good. And it's not the tree of good knowledge of good and evil, and it's not that there's some snake there. It's none of those things. That's not the not good. No, it's something that God declares is not good, and it's something that God himself takes upon himself to rectify. It's God who notices that Adam needs a helper. Not Adam. He doesn't know what he needs. And this is not about relational loneliness, because he has God. Adam's not lonely, nor is he incomplete. 
But what he can't do is succeed according to the plan God had given him. Remember that plan to fill and subdue the earth? Can't succeed by himself. You can't fill the earth with more of God's image bearers if Adam can't procreate. So to bring about a helper for this task, God gets to it. That's this next part we have here. So first of all, he brings all the animals past Adam. For Adam to express rule over them. And he names them there, verses 19 and 20. And not only rule here, we see again the rudimentary beginnings of science, naming and distinguishing between species and animals. And relationally, most importantly, this also bears witness that there's no suitable helper among the animals for Adam to rule with in God's intended manner. A dog might be man's best friend and birds can be entertaining and fun companions. A horse can transport, an ox and a cow can sustain us and double our output. But there's no creature that God parades before Adam who can help him to procreate with. So those animals, we name them, we claim them, we rule over them, and that's it. So with nothing living that can be man's helper to fulfill God's purpose, God intervenes. From the man, God made for the man the perfect helper. He made a woman. One who was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Of the same type as him, of the same race as him not another thing made out of the dirt but like him in every way part of him yet perfectly different to him so she could compliment him as his helper in this task to succeed and only god could provide such a one as this only god could invent her and only god knew how to make her such that she was acceptable to him as one with him, recognisably in God's image. And only God could protect him in the task of doing so, making her out of him. We get our first surgery here, putting Adam to sleep. God does it and removing one of his ribs. And notice that while God made Adam out of the dust of the earth, Eve was made from Adam. And in the same way that he brought the animals to Adam, God now presents the woman to Adam. And he gives him the honour of recognising her, but not ruling over her with a name like he did with the animals. Now that difficult moment will come later in chapter 3. Mm. But for now, God did what only God could do and Adam recognised it. And so Adam speaks the first recorded human words there in verse 23. And of course, they're the first recorded human words because Eve's there to hear them. This is now bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then that all-important sentence is delivered there, verse 24. A sentence that now creates distinction and brings order into all of our many human relationships that will follow. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And so it's from this new binary union, distinct 
and severed from the parental bonds that procreation is made possible and the method of success in filling and subduing the earth is secured until the coming of Jesus Christ. The man was given the responsibility by God to do it. And his task is only made possible because God also supplied not just the command, but the woman as man's helper. As the Bible declares it, man and woman, both in the image of God, equal in value, equal in identity, equal in purpose to rule over all the things God has made, but different in role, complementary, not identical, not interchangeable. And neither can succeed as God's image-bearing rulers without the other. And so while all the definitions were in place by verse 17, now all the parts are in place by the end of chapter 2. The beginnings are here. Identity, purpose and the method of success for human flourishing and for the flourishing of all the earth, of all creation, has been put in place by God. Now, the method of our success will change dramatically once Jesus comes. But we're in Genesis. We're there at the start. And so until Jesus comes, humanity is secure, shameless, and utterly at peace with who they are and what they're supposed to do. No shame. So is that the world, how the world looks for you and me now? Not so much, eh? That picture's a far cry from where we find ourselves today. And all around us, the people around us, and including us, we sometimes do it too, bark like insecure domestic dogs, severed from any understanding about our human identity, our purpose, and our method of success. Now, that, how that all-consuming tragedy, this slow-burning train wreck that we're all a part of, how that comes about and how that begins and what causes it, we're going to unpack that next week as we come to the next part of this account of the heavens and the earth that's recorded for us there in Genesis 3. But for now, I think it's important for me to conclude by reminding you what happened when Jesus came. What transforms the method of success after Jesus came? Because something happened. And it's very important to know what it is. Especially for us who call ourselves Christians, right? Who follow Jesus. You see, Jesus is declared to be, by God, his son. The second Adam. If we go into the New Testament, we see that Jesus lived obediently under God's rule and he did not seek to define good and evil for himself, accepting rather God's purpose, living out God's command, even to death, nailed to a tree. And his free, willing submission to good and to evil supplies for all of us a new tree of life, a tree by which we can live forever. A tree which now defines good and evil for all of us eternally. A tree that re-secures our identity, reminding us that we are made in God's image, that we have a ruling purpose to rule the heavens and the earth eternally with him, 
and perhaps most significant of all, not just re-securing those two things, but a tree that has redefined what success looks like for men and women today in what it means to fill and subdue the earth now. What are we supposed to do with that? See, for you and me Christians living this side of the cross, singleness or barrenness, the inability to bear children, is no longer a tragedy and it is no longer a curse stopping us from fulfilling our potential. It's no longer, singleness or barrenness are no longer a failure or a problem or a difficulty that stops us from filling and subduing the earth. Because we don't need to use our bodies in the same way to fill the earth with people anyway anymore. Sure, we're free to marry and bear children. Nothing wrong with doing that. It's a fine thing to do. But this side of the cross, it's no longer necessary in order to succeed. It's no longer necessary or required of any Christian living for God. In fact, the command Jesus has given us is to now use our male and female voices lifted together, working together, the overflow of the heart. We praise his name. We speak his word. We use our male and female voices to bring life to others by our words, not by our genitals. We fill and subdue the earth together by making disciples of Jesus, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them, again, using our words, to obey every word he commanded. Not making, maturing, and multiplying babies. Sure, we can do that. But our task now is to make, mature, and multiply disciples by using our words together to talk about him who died on that tree for us. When we speak to other people about Jesus, when we speak, God breathes new life into the people around us who would otherwise return to the dust from whence they came if he does not breathe life and eternal life into them. But the activation point is that speaking of his word. And so it's faithful obedience to that task of speaking that's now our legacy, now our measure of success. A task that when successful makes it possible for all who listen to be vulnerable before God and to feel no shame. Forgiven, righteous, set free, no shame. How good is this? This is the gift that we have to share with all the world. This is our, this is our legacy, our gift. People who follow Jesus, secure knowing who we are, living this side of the cross, secure identity, secure purpose, and now a measure of success that is entirely possible for every single one of us, whether single, married, barren or fertile, doesn't matter. That's who we now are. That's what God has made us to be. And this is a security and clarity of life and purpose that we have as God's people. And that's ours until he returns. There's only one thing to do, isn't it? Let's ask his help to do it. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that you're the God who made us, gave us identity, purpose, told us what to do. And thank you that you sent your son to speak into that to now give us another thing to do. We thank you that both things are good. 
We thank you for the potential and possibility. But we thank you most of all that new life comes when we speak like you spoke to us and bring order out of chaos, life out of death, using the good news of Jesus. We thank you for that great privilege. Help us in it to be faithful to you and not to get lost with the world around us who is still so lost. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.